welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and today on the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne, I am talking to Professor Martin Lyons. And Martin is an Emeritus Professor of History at the University of New South Wales. He has published many books on the history of reading and writing in Europe and Australia, including... Dear Prime Minister, Letters to Robert Menzies, 1949-1966, to published by University of New South Wales Press. Welcome to the Afternoon Light Podcast, Martin. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure and uh, I am really looking forward to our discussion on all those letters that were written to Robert Menzies between 1949 and 66. And I understand you read all 22 odd thousand of them. Uh, there may well be more that I didn't find, but uh, yes, I read I read uh, about 20,000 letters in the National Library in Canberra where, where all Menzies' papers are kept. Oh, extraordinary. That must have taken you a fair while to do, I assume. Well, <laughs> or are you a quick reader? You're a speed me. reader. <laughs> I'm, a qu- I'm a quick reader and I've sort of figured out what I was looking for in the, before long, but a lot of the letters are very short and, of course, I'm including here almost everything, uh, telegrams, um, cards, things with, with very short messages. So some of them took no time at all. Uh, well, can I just start by asking you, why, why did you choose to write about these letters to Robert Menzies and during that period, 49 to 66? I mean, it's an incredible gift to, I think, um, the historiography of Menzies and we at the Robert Menzies Institute are thrilled that you've written this book. But um, what led you to decide to undertake this project? Well, I'm interested in uh, a kind of history from below. I'm interested in a history that is one that takes into account what ordinary people were thinking and, and what their beliefs and assumptions were. And I thought that this collection of letters to the Prime Minister would give me an insight into that sort of history. Apart from that, I'm also interested in in writing and the history of writing in the past. And here I'm particularly interested in why so many people invested so much time and effort in writing, in writing to the Prime Minister, even though it was very difficult for a lot of them. And a lot of them were, were, I think we can say, semi-literate as well. So it wasn't Manzi's that attracted me, it was the correspondence itself. I think it really shows the importance of writing, at least um, in this period, and the way it empowered people. I'm not sure if they were really empowered, but they certainly felt empowered in writing to Menzies. Yeah, and in your book you, you obviously extract quite a few letters and there are a variety of, of styles of you know there's a lot of spelling errors there's a lot of confusion around um, forms of address and 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 of course you've identified so many really interesting themes but digging into that what why did people write 
to Menzies, their Prime Minister for, for so long, from 1949 to 66 for, for the second occasion, but he'd been Prime Minister before, of course. Yes. Well, there were, there were several reasons, a whole lot of reasons. I suppose the most um, the, the dominant reason, if you like, was they, was to congratulate him. They congratulated him on uh, his election victories and, as you know, there were many of those on his birthday. On They congratulated him on returning from one of his overseas trips. There were many of those too. They wrote to congratulate him on a, what they thought was a successful radio appearance, for instance. They praised his oratory, they, some of them said it's so great to have a prime minister finally who can speak the king's English. <laughs> um, they, they wrote, they sent him stuff, they sent him gifts, they sent him fruit. The wineries would send him a dozen bottles of red at Christmas time. They sent cigars, they knew he was fond of a good cigar. They sent him a tartan scarves. A lot of women were, were knitting him tartan scarves, and of course, his <laughs> Scottish connections were well advertised. I wonder what happened um, to all those that, tartan scarves. <laughs> yes, I'd like to know too. I, 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 I can I have imagine, no idea. I can imagine what happened to the wine and the cigars. <laughs> yes, yes. They asked, of course, for personal favours. They they wanted to get the, the telephone link fixed up quickly. Some of them asked him for a loan. They wanted him to send some old clothes. Some people wanted him to help in their custody battles. And, of course, there were those who wanted a ticket to a royal garden party or some royal event. Mm. And there was, of course, a Reg Longdon. The, 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 I'll tell you the story. It's the one I opened the book with. Reg was driving home to Ballarat at Christmas time. And he got stuck in South Australia. His car broke down. He phoned home, but there was no one there to help him because they were away for Christmas. So what could he do? Who could he turn to? Who do you turn to in a situation like this at Christmas time <laughs> when everyone's on holiday? Well, he wrote to Menzies. He turned to the Prime Minister and asked him to lend him, send him a few quid to get out of trouble. <laughs> um, I, I think that's remarkable. I can't see that happening today, but I think... I find it quite remarkable. Of course, he didn't get the money, I'm afraid, but he did get a letter later saying, uh, dear Mr. Longdon, I hope you uh, I hope you got home safely in the end. People wrote virtual sermons. They, they preached to Menzies. They told him, they told him off. They told him to stick to the straight and narrow and, and seek salvation and so on. They reprimanded him for his bad behavior. Um, they warned him that if he didn't change his policy, he was going to lose the next election and so on. Uh, they were angry letters and and they were pleading letters and there were some there were some desperate letters too des people from people desperate for money desperate for help of some kind mm. but what what did this then reveal about the prevailing views amongst the public i mean i i understand not everyone writes to the prime minister and not everyone wrote to mentees so there was a certain type of person who did and you, you talk about that in your book so we, yes. we can't we can't make too many gross generalizations about the prevailing views within society in australia based on these letters but we can mm. we can certainly get a glimpse of some of the things that those who were writing to the prime minister were were really concerned about that's absolutely right. Um, these were mainly letters from Liberal Party supporters. Yeah. Uh, not all, not all, not exclusively, but mainly. And so, uh, in general, there's a whole sort of chunk of 
public opinion which isn't represented here. And we also, there's another sort of caveat I'd like to make as well, and that is that of the individual letters, the letters from individuals rather than from organizations and businesses and so on, most of them were sent by men rather than women. Men were in a majority of sort of 70 to 30. Right. And so that's another, that's another sort of limitation, if you like, on, on talking about the letters as representing public opinion in general. They don't. As you, as you say, we have to make a few reservations about that. But they do, I think, give us an insight in, in at least into sort of liberal party ground, uh, sort of grassroots level thinking at the time. Mm. We can see we can see them very concerned with some of the main issues which which are quite predictable, really. First of all, they're very concerned about the communist threat. The anti-communism, is, of course, is a very strong theme, but, but it changes. It changes through the period. It starts off as a it starts off as a grave concern about communist activity in the trade union movement, and and uh, it's something. It's an anti-union idea, and it's very much concerned with domestic politics. But then, in the middle of the fifties, especially with the Petrov affair, it becomes. You know, the USSR comes into the picture much more, and anti-communism is much more concerned about the Soviets trying to extend their influence in the world. And then later on in the period, of course, towards the end, anti-communism is much more focused on Asia. It's part of the Asian threat, uh, and they're more concerned with, with China in particular. Um, apart from that, you can also see the strength of the British connection, mm. which Menzies, of course, valued highly, and he personified it, I think, really. And the British connection was, let's remember, it was very much part of Australian identity in this period. Um, and that comes through very strongly in the letters, especially around the time of the royal visit of the new Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip in 1954, which brought millions of Australians out into the streets to see them. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, the in a long visit of two months, but 75% of Australians saw the saw the Queen during that visit. It's just yes. you can't even imagine that in this this day and age. <laughs> No, I think that was the last moment in a way. I mean, that was maybe the swan song because there were other royal visits after 54 from other royals which got nothing like the same attention or, or aroused the same enthusiasm. So I think this was maybe the final sort of climax of that popular royalism yeah. which uh, is very much expressed in the letters. But I'd like to introduce one more theme which runs right through the letters and it's not so predictable at all and this is the theme of pensions which really concerned people and this is where the sort of the, the, the view from below comes in because you wouldn't have pre I would, wouldn't, didn't predict this. It was something that surprised me, the, the concern about the level of pensions and the difficulty of trying to live on one. There are many, many letters about this. I would say it was the number one topic of the whole correspondence. Yeah, um, yeah. uh, and, of course, the issue, the, the underlying issue there is the issue of the means test, which many people felt in the letters should be abolished. They felt it, it was penalising people who, who, who had worked hard and saved money 
and then because they had a little bit of capital they found themselves ineligible for a pension they thought this they thought in the means test in maintaining the means test Menzies was in a way betraying them he was betraying his own principles because uh, he had seemed to stand for independence thrift hard work and savings uh, and uh, by insisting on maintaining the means test he seemed to be abandoning those ideas mm, mm. and i mean this is an issue of course that that uh, resonates to this very day and in fact yeah. those those policy questions are still to this day vexed ones about means testing mm-hmm. and what's included in the yeah. assets test and the like so uh, something that That's right. and yeah. of course back then in in the 1950s and 60s the percentage of the population who were receiving the pension would be far less than than it than it is today, given our ageing population and changing demographic profile. So it's... Um, That's, yes. Yeah. No, it's, it would be interesting to uh, know what a contemporary Prime Minister, what proportion of a contemporary Prime Minister's letters are also about the means test and the pension system yeah. and the inequity of it or, or, or not. I was wondering, Martin, if we could talk about Australian democracy. So obviously in our... Westminster tradition, people mm-hmm. go out and vote for their local representative who then usually is for part of a one of the two major political parties and whoever is the leader of that the majority political party in the, the lower house of our parliament becomes the becomes the Prime Minister. So there was you know, very much, of course, Menzies would have been very attuned to making sure that he was doing things that would ensure he got elected and doing things I'm sure that he thought were right. But what did these letters reveal about the nature of Australian democracy insofar as people felt that they could influence their elected representatives or threaten them without it, with, with, with losing their vote? <laughs> That's right. They had that power at least. Yes, of course, in our democratic system, citizens do have the right of petitioning. And clearly, in this period at least, they were they were exercising it in their thousands. It was a constitutional right, and Menzies' secretariat continually uh, you know, reminded people, yes, uh, you're, you're perfectly free uh, to write uh, and ask the Prime Minister questions and so on. So this is a kind of, a, I think, you know, a very healthy situation. But the letters assumed, I think, that ordinary citizens could get personal access to the Prime Minister. They wanted to establish, and they thought they could establish, a kind of hotline to the top. <laughs> and they believed, they believed that if they could just get Menzies' attention, he would be able to see their problems and understand their problems and see what the bureaucracy was doing wrong and he'd be able to fix things up. And this assumption, which I think was a a delusion because uh, although they tried very hard to get direct access, the letters were inevitably mediated by secretaries who filtered them and chose what to pass on to Menzies and and what not. Sometimes people were very shocked to discover that actually their letters were not getting to the Prime Minister. They were shocked to receive a response from a secretary rather than from Menzies himself, even if Menzies actually, you know, wrote the signature at the bottom of the page. 
and this is an interesting as I think an interesting aspect of the letters that they thought some people thought that if they wrote private and confidential on the envelope that would get through to Menzies personally <laughs> some of them even thought that if they wrote a handwritten letter instead of a typed letter that that would be that would be more personal that would give them personal access as well some of them tried to kind of dodge the system by by writing to his wife <clears throat> they wrote to dame patty because they thought that was a way a way around the, the, the bureaucracy which would get a Menzies attention in the end. Of course, they were wrong on all those counts. So that's a kind of, in a way, that's the tragedy of it. I mean, but it's, bas- it's really basic to this kind of letter writing, that the, 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 the idea that there is, a, there is a way of access and Menzies and the prime minister, the person at the top, can be influenced. What proportion, Martin, of letters written to Menzies do you think he actually read himself? Are we talking one percent, ten percent? I mean, you know, you, you, you well, read really, twenty-two thousand, so he definitely wouldn't have read that. I think you, you say there was a a stamp um, that they that the secretaries put on a letter if the prime minister had actually I couldn't, read it. I couldn't tell you how many. I couldn't yeah. tell you how many. But, I mean, there's a small proportion. I mean, the secretaries decided if they had a problem, they would, they would in, in form, formulating a reply, then, yes, they would uh, refer it to Menzies. And we see, in fact, we see uh, the secretaries writing notes to Menzies on the letters or on, on the envelopes, um, you know, dear Mr. Mendes, what shall I say to this person? They seem to be very cranky. Um, but on, on the whole, they, 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 the secretaries... Uh, actually, there were only two secretaries to deal with all this, uh, to deal with these letters, but on the whole, they handled the replies themselves and only referred, I think, a few to Menzies. If somebody said, oh, I know, I know Mr. Menzies, you know, he's an old friend of my family and so on, then they would check with him, is this really true? Do you know these people? Or how shall I, you know, what tone should I adopt? And so on. So, so when they had a problem, they would certainly refer to Menzies. And they did that quite often. They did that quite often, but of course, a lot of a lot of letters actually were flicked onto somebody else. If there was a query about immigration, for instance, if somebody wants to wanted to emigrate to Australia, that would be sent on to the minister for immigration. If there was a, a request for a telephone connection, which there were many of, then that would be sent on to the postmaster general, and so on. And Menzies didn't have to look look at those. So the secretaries really were the ultimate gatekeepers for Menzies. So they they wielded real real power, um, much to the frustration, I guess, of the the correspondence, which is, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, yes, um, if you're familiar with the way MPs' offices works, that's that's obvious. But to a to a everyday person, that might have come as a quite a disappointment. <laughs> Well, I think it did. But, of course, the secretaries couldn't actually resolve anybody's problems. I mean, they didn't have any scope for making administrative decisions. They had to often, as I said, as I just said, they had to send the problems off to, to a minister or, or some other government office. But, of course, when a minister received something forwarded from the, from Menzies, they knew they had to pay attention to it and they knew they had to send a, you know, a good report on, on, on it back to, back to the secretariat but the secretariat yeah they were very important one in particular i've come across a lot and that's that's hazel craig who was the secretary 
private secretary to Menzies right through this whole period. She had worked for Chifley, first of all, and then for Menzies. She was a, she was a public servant. It didn't matter what you know political party she was working for. Uh, she was a public servant. She had that sort of neutral attitude. She wasn't supposed to express any opinions. Of course, she had opinions. We know that because... We know that from the interviews that she gave after she retired. She did have opinions. She was very admiring of Menzies, I think. And she thought the Labour leader, Everett, uh, went bananas at some at one point. And she was very influential, I agree. And she was very close to Menzies. She went on him in, on every trip he made to the United Kingdom. She was there. In your book, you do compare the letter-receiving and responding machine of Menzies' office with the equivalent in the French president's office, which yes. I thought was quite quite an interesting comparison. I mean, obviously, very different populations, a different political system, presidential system and, and the like. Yes. But uh, can you describe to me how those two systems operated differently and, and, and then, of course, what, what impact that had on the sort of public's engagement with these letters, you know, different sort of writing letters in different systems? Yes, well, we can compare the uh, the Menzies correspondence, as you say, with with the similar correspondence received by leaders in other democratic countries. Um, I, I I used um, President Mitterrand in France as one example, but there's also the example of Barack Obama, who received an enormous amount of letters, possibly uh, ten thousand a day during his presidency. Mm. And he had a secretariat of hundreds of people to deal with those, and they would every day select 10 letters to relay to Obama which for him to read. And so there the secretaries were enormously powerful in filtering the letters and deciding what, what, what would go to the president himself, and the result was a tiny, a tiny number, of course. So, yes, there's a, there's a huge difference of scale. Australia is a small country, and in comparison to to France or the USA, we're dealing with much smaller numbers, smaller number of letters, and a smaller secretariat to deal with them. But the same principles, I think, and the same assumptions still apply. That's to say, the idea that anyone can write to the leader and expect to get some sort of um, acknowledgement, some sort of recognition, and that it was possible for people to get to make direct, unmediated contact with the leader. That's the assumption, whatever the context, France, USA, elsewhere, Australia, that assumption I think is, is almost universal and that's what really lies behind this huge uh, amount of, of letter writing. Um, in your book, Martin, you have a, a section on the way people addressed Menzies in their, their letters, and it's very varied, um, as you can imagine. Yes. And you comment on the fact, obviously, some people are very familiar with letter writing and the sort of protocols. Others are completely unfamiliar. It might have been the first time they've ever put pen to paper in, in terms of a letter. How, yes. how did those those different styles how do they what do they reveal about australian attitudes to deference i mean we're, we're known aren't we as a as a 
not a very deferential society, egalitarian. You can imagine letters written by Brits to Winston Churchill or the like during the similar era would have would have been much more deferential. What what do you think about Australian attitudes to deference during the, that period? Well, I think that egalitarianism is a myth. I mean, the letters here uh, to Menzies could be extremely deferential, not to say groveling. People were constantly apologising for writing at all. I mean, they they apologised for encroaching on his time, and of course, that um, apologetic sort of mode was was a, was a part of the of of the rhetoric of uh, the letter writer trying to get his attention. The rhetoric of apology was very important. Uh, so so I think the, the, the deference was certainly there. Of course, there was a great variety. Um, the letter schools, though, could be, could be uh, very chatty. Uh, there were many letters addressed to dear Bob, even from people who didn't, who, who didn't know Menzies personally at all. And one I like was my dear Chacha from an Indian gentleman. That means my, <laughs> my dear uncle. My dear uncle, that seems, I, I like that very much. There were people from overseas who, who were even more deferential, I mean, who, who, who called him Your Excellency, Your Highness. Uh, and there were the French schoolboys who called him, who addressed him as the President of the Australian Republic, which uh, I imagine Menzies didn't like particularly, but that's, but that's what he got. At the same time, so at the same time as this sort of deferential attitude, there was also a lot of familiarity shown in... in in the letters, uh, it's shown sometimes in the materials themselves that people used. They they wrote on on ordinary, you know, lined uh, pads of uh, paper that the sort of paper you'd use for for anything, maybe writing a shopping list. Um, there was the the letter from I think it was from a bus conductor who, which was just written on a, a piece of brown wrapping paper. I mean, so people would write on on. On almost anything, um, and that, that I think shows a certain sort of familiarity with uh, with Menzies. They didn't sort of care to be too formal about it. Um, when Menzies got knighted, I think the forms of address, if anything, became more deferential than they had been before. Instead of writing to dear Mr. Menzies, which was you know, common form of address, it became Dear Sir Robert. Dear Sir Robert became uh, the favourite form of start, way of starting a letter using his title. So I would say there's a combination here of deference and familiarity, and that's shown, I think, by the woman who addressed him as Dear Mr Ming. <laughs> so Dear Mr is quite formal, but Ming, of course, is Menzi's personal nickname, which which I think very few people actually used except those very close to him. But Dear Mr Ming, I think, sums up that mixture of being different but also being familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it would have been quite interesting to, to sort of do a, a review of how many different ways one can address a prime minister and the, you know, do we have a correct way there or were, not? Maybe there were know, many. Maybe. I think I count. I think I counted sixty, sixty or so every year. Yes, different ways. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, people were struggling to find the right, the right tone. I think, as you say, they were not used to letter writing. That they didn't quite know how you address the prime minister. And it was a pre-Google era. So, I mean, unless you had a um, an etiquette book to hand, you might not have had any way of finding out how one was supposed but, to address. The Prime Minister. Um, yeah. Yep, uh, what about that 
you know, Australia's known for tall poppy syndrome, cut down those who think they're, you know, too big for their boots and bring them back down to earth to the rest of us. I mean, I, I know you said you, you think this sort of idea of Australia as an egalitarian society is a myth, but it, but that is part of the nature of Australian society, the tall poppy syndrome. Was, was there... Was there a sense of that in in some of the letters? I don't think so. Not from the Liberal supporters, anyway. Um, they were, uh, the, if anything, they were they were very respectful. There are a few angry letters uh, which are personally quite insulting to Menzies and do have that sort of t- cutting down the tall poppy aspect. But they they come, I think, from the left. I think they come from people who were not Liberal Party supporters, but probably. Uh, Labour Party supporters, mm. um, they were they were angry. Actually, one thing that made them particularly angry was the, the times when the the members of Parliament voted themselves a pay rise. Oh, always um, unpopular. Of course, <laughs> always unpopular. Of course, there was no sort of in de- automatic indexation in these days. It depended. It had there had to be a parliamentary vote. Um, on uh, on the salaries of, of parliamentarians, so so the parliamentarians were voting themselves a pay rise. At the same time, of course, they were voting Menzies a pay rise. Um, you know, it applied to the lower house and the upper house and the ministers and the prime minister as well. And so this made people very angry, especially the pensioners who were struggling. Um, of course. And and on this theme, sometimes you get a little bit of what you're suggesting. Um, uh, you know the tall poppy syndrome coming through, and they they were insulting that they're insulting Menzies as a as a hypocrite and as sort of a a fat cat who was lining his own pocket mm. while other people were were in great difficulty. Yes, uh, well, a- again, themes that have stayed with us um, for, yes. for you know since time immemorial, and and I'm sure into the future too. Um, Martin, in your book, you you have a chapter on on the the paranoid conspiracy theorists sort of very unusual mm. letters can you give me some examples of of how how you know, of what people were saying in those those paranoid letters <laughs> perhaps not reflecting too much on what was going on in general society but but really probably a, a phenomenon that that again lives with us to this day and of course we see it we see it in full view often on social media <laughs> yes indeed uh, and maybe you know that's a kind of equivalent now for for for, for some of these letters and and what they were saying. Yes, they were paranoid. What I call paranoid letters, letters which show the, this idea that there are cons- that, that well conspiracy theory you called it the idea that that, that there are conspiracies afoot to undermine society uh, and especially the idea that the communists are are plotting to take over. There are letters denouncing, people even denouncing their neighbours. This is a kind of a a Stasi situation, if you Mm. know what I mean. People are denouncing their neighbours because they thought they had communist connections or the the woman who wrote, oh, there there are cars pulling up and there are Chinese people visiting and this is very suspicious and so on. So there there are a few of this kind of... um, uh, terrible sort of denunciations. It, it seems as though they were not acted on. Some of them were referred to ASIO, and as far as I can see from the files, uh, you know, ASIO said there's nothing to worry about here. It's somebody being a bit, you know, oversensitive. But certainly the, the, there are those sorts of letters. There are letters also, uh, there are sectarian letters who attack the Catholic Church, Protestants attacking the Catholic Church for 
conspiring to undermine Australian stability and 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 the true Australian identity as they saw it. There are... Uh, were, were there any responses to those letters? Because that was something that Menzies really eschewed, is that sectarianism. He, he obviously did a lot for Catholic schools through the state aid program yes. and uh, yes. wasn't you know was was friendly with BA Santa Maria in his in his retirement and certainly engaged with the Catholic community quite quite strongly and of course benefited from the um the, the sort of Irish Catholic traditional labor vote that split from the yes. labor party over concerns about communism through preferences yep. from the DLP absolutely Yes, this is not. I mean, I'm, I'm commenting on the legacy. I'm not commenting on Menzies himself. I mean, Menzies' Presbyterian connections were were very well known. But as you say, um, he tried to dampen down some of the sectarianism. I mean, he was, as you say, he was on very good terms with uh, the the Catholic hierarchy, um, and and there are letters. There are letters here which show that he had very good relations with the with the Vatican diplomats, I think, as well as as far as I can tell from from the from the letters. So yes, Menzies would not reply to the most to the extreme, the extremely paranoid letters. If uh, the secretaries asked him what they should do about it, he he would often say, "Just ignore it," mm. and and that's what they did. And and on that, so he's he's saying ignore some of these sort of extreme paranoid letters. But did he? Mm. Do you think there was a sense that these letters, these twenty two thousand odd letters, were useful to him? Was it a way of gauging public opinion? Was it was it um, to make himself feel better if most of them were sort of congratulatory? Um, did he did he use them well, to no, read that no. public mood to get that zeitgeist? Well, who knows? I can't. I, I don't. I just don't know. I mean, if he did, what would he have learned? He would have learned. I think, first of all, he would have learned something about his own popularity, um, because that that that's obviously one of the sort of messages here. He was susceptible to the flattery. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I guess everybody is, uh, to some extent. If somebody wrote a particularly flattering letter, uh, he was inclined to reply and congratulate the author on their acute political insight. <laughs> um, uh, so, so that was one message he would have got. But, but as for, uh, I, I can't see him responding to the, to the letters in, in with any sort of action. I mean, in fact, the contrary. I mean, it's quite clear that although there was in, I think it was in 1954 in particular, there was a big push to abolish the means test. Um, and and many Labour Party branches wrote to say, if you don't respond to the Labour Party on this, Mr Mendes, you're going to lose the election. Menzies refused to do anything about it. Um, he said, no, I'm not going to enter a bidding war here. This is our policy and, and this is our budget and that's it. So that's one example, I think, of Menzies. He may have he may have read the public mood, but it doesn't mean that he that he uh, responded as 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 the letter writers wanted him to. No, and I, I guess that's the challenge for any political leader is trying to navigate the 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 two the two, <laughs> the two <laughs> imperatives of of being popular, so you get elected time and time again, but also of doing things that you think are are right based on your political beliefs and principles mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
I guess the pension perhaps was uh, one of those examples where he lent more to what he thought was fiscally responsible or conservative approach rather than the um, the, the more popular, potentially more popular. Yes, and, and, that, and that's a kind of a constant theme, isn't it, um, in, in, in the debate and the arguments between the left and the right. Uh, the, uh, it's always the, the, it's another example of, of, of the Liberal argument that Labour Party policy is going to spend too much money and be irres- financially irresponsible. Well, this was, this was the answer to the to the pensioners' letters, which they most often received, it was an argument about how much it would cost, and of course, um, the, how much it would cost to um, abolish the means test and increase the pensions, the age pensions, and the other pensions too. The, the, and um, and of course, that cost was increasing year by year. What what, what I do see though is something that happens towards the very end of the period in the last couple of years of his, this you know, record-breaking term of office is that he stops answering the pensioners' letters. He's, he stops even saying, I'm sorry, but it, you know, the government can't afford it. And what happens in, we can see this in, in the files, what happens in those last two years is that the, the, the letters of complaints from the pensioners get shuffled into a file which is called the no-reply file. <laughs> and that's the file where the, where the paranoid letters are. That's the file where the ones from the real cranks are. And the pensioners get classified with them, which I think is, uh, to me, that was very disappointing. Yeah, and, and so that leads me to my to my final question, Martin, about the secretaries. You've talked about Hazel Craig, of course, um, Menzies, very, very long-standing and loyal secretary, although, as you said, a public servant, non-partisan, and have worked for chiefly beforehand. But um, mm-hmm. these secretaries, which we've spoken about before, were, were gatekeepers, but they obviously had to exercise particular judgment about how to respond to these letters and and were were really invoking Menzies in in their responses. Can you tell me about some of the other the other um, secretaries? There were you know, Jeffrey Yeend, the um, was he principal private secretary? Jeffrey Yeend, the one the one I the one I, also, I one of those who I came across a lot. Of course, was was Heseltine, um, who went on to become private secretary to the Queen. I mean, he had a wonderful career. Um, uh, and yes, yes, as you say, that they were. I think they had a big responsibility. They certainly wanted to. They weren't channeling Menzies' style in the way that we know that Obama's secretaries were doing. They tried to write in the way they thought Obama would write. It wasn't they, the Menzies' secretaries weren't doing that. But obviously, they, they had a responsible position. They developed a few, you know, formulas, uh, which they were fond of repeating. If somebody wrote, uh, had a grievance about a particular issue, whether it was pensions or something else, they was they would give a very, you know, non-committal reply and say, thank you very much for the, the practical interest you've shown in this topic. That was sort of, sort of one of their favorite formulas. So, so it was a little bit, a little bit like that. But one thing that I find really remarkable is that almost everybody got a reply of some kind. Seventy-five to eighty percent of the letters 
got some reply from, if not from Menzies personally, from the Secretariat, even if it was a brief acknowledgement, or it, it, more often it was a couple of paragraphs of explanation. But, but that is a very high rate of response. Oh, that's quite impressive. That would have been a, a mm. massive undertaking and, and mm. you know, investment in their time and resources. So it's, uh, I mean, that, 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 that makes me feel like the efforts of these letter writers did not go for, you know, for nothing. They weren't for nothing. They were, they were yes. at least read yep. and someone thought about how to respond. And uh, yes. in, the, in the culture and environment of a prime ministerial office, those, those letters and the content of them would have been, even if they weren't directly discussed, they would have been absorbed and, and I, I would like to think some of the, uh, the concerns were, were taken up to the top and, and absorbed as well and, and hopefully in some respects addressed. Um, thank you very much, mm-hmm. Martin, for um, this wonderful discussion on the, the letters to Menzies from 1949 to 66. I highly recommend... Uh, Getting Your Book, Dear Prime Minister, published by UNSW Press. It's, uh, it's a really, really fascinating read and uh, illuminates that, you know, a very different um, source of history. Uh, we're used to official histories, histories from written by, by leaders and governments and um, academics, but this is the real, you know, from the mouth of the people um, who don't often get a say in our history. So it's uh, wonderfully illuminating and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to me today. Thank you, it's my pleasure. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.